podcast. And these are the stories of the heart of the community in the heartland. This series brings to life the oral histories of journalists in North and South Dakota, newspaper legends who devoted their lives to covering their rural communities. By now, a few have passed on, but all of their legacies endure, and their history is forever preserved in the newspapers they leave behind, as well as through these stories. These episodes are sponsored by the North Dakota Newspaper Association and the South Dakota Newspaper Association. Since the 1880s, both have advocated for the public's right to know and for the importance of newspapers in a democracy. For the community of Grand Forks, North Dakota, the historic flood of 1997 was a life-altering disaster that impacted every resident in the city. More than 60,000 people in Grand Forks and East Grand Forks were forced to evacuate in April 1997 when the Red River overflowed and consumed the city. According to FEMA, more than 80% of Grand Forks homes and 60% of businesses were damaged, including all 385 downtown businesses. One of those downtown businesses was the Grand Forks Herald, whose staff found a way to keep publishing the newspaper even after the building flooded and burned down. Their news coverage went on to receive a Pulitzer Prize. In July 2016, former Grand Forks Herald publisher and editor Mike Jacobs sat down for an oral history to capture his memories of the 1997 flood. This is his story. So let's talk about the 1997 flood since it's been mentioned a few times and, and just talk about your memories of that event. Both personally and as yeah, editor. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't do the math this morning, but it's been 19 years, two months, three months, less two days. April, no, four days. April 19th, 1997. Um, that the river came over the dike and um, not particularly unexpected. I mean, you know, Bev Keys, my predecessor, uh, always said, you know, there, there's a Pulitzer in Grand Forks. You know, there's going to be a flood. There's a Pulitzer in Grand Forks. And yeah, ha, ha, ha. But, um, I mean, I could, I could, I could talk for hours about the flood, but in some ways I, I, I just think, how can it be that after almost 20 years, I'm still talking about the flood? Um, so what do you want to know about the flood? Well, talk about first how you organized your newsroom to handle this major event. Um, Well, there are there are there are actually I would say three, maybe four, stages of the flood. One was anticipation. Uh, it was pretty clear given the given the the uh, uh, meteorological circumstances confronting us in the winter of ninety six ninety seven that uh, a flood event was possible. Um, and so we spent 
quite a lot of time thinking about you know what we would do we had we had grandiose ideas we were going to print the name of everybody who sandbagged we were going to count the number of sandbags and so on uh, it did not occur to us uh, that we weren't going to be successful in the flood fight um, to the point that when the actual preparation for the flood crisis crisis means turning point here when the actual preparations came, uh, I brought a toothbrush and uh, a pair of waders uh, and a change of underwear uh, and put them in the desk drawer. And I encouraged you know everybody to imagine that there would be a night or two when we might have to stay in the building and you you know so on and so forth. Um, so that was the preparation. And then there's the event. Um, you know, uh, I don't know that we realized until after the first deadline on, on April 18th. Um, and we put, we, we put the paper to bed, sent it downstairs, and Jim Durkin and I went, went out on the street. Durkin was a smoker at the time, no longer is, he wants me to point out. Uh, we went out on the street and we noticed two things. First, we noticed the very, very weird light. This is, you know, approaching midnight. Um, the first edition deadline was 1110. So it's, it's getting on to 11.30. We noticed this really weird light and, and uh, we sort of commented on it and then we suddenly understood that it, the reason it was so weird is that it was reflecting off the water which was above our heads behind the dike. You know, the dike was directly across the street from the Herald. And, and we were looking up at the top of the dike and there was the water. <laughs> and so the street lights were reflecting in the in the in the water of the river uh, at you know a level that we'd never anticipated, and that was about the time that the first breach in the dike occurred, and there was a frantic uh, series of phone calls of people saying, you know, what are you doing at the Herald? You know, why are you still there? And so I went to the radio station, KCNN, to say, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna take care of the first edition and then everybody's gonna, you know, go home and take care of. And I drove, I owned a, I owned a, I owned a Toyota, a Toyota Land Rover at the time, a butch vehicle, four wheel drive vehicle. And KCNN was in the old Great Northern Depot building on the southwest corner of downtown, and the Herald was four or five blocks away in our building on the northeast corner of downtown, so across downtown basically, four or five blocks. And when I drove back, I turned into the alley, the Herald closer to the river than KCNN. Uh, I turned into the alley and water was coming up the alley, 
and so uh, <laughs> I loaded all the papers I could into the into the uh, Toyota and said, you know, we're out of here. Uh, uh, Dave McMenemy, who was the press man, uh, had the presence of mind to cut the electricity to the building. Um, and uh, we took we took the papers out to the out to the emergency uh, uh, headquarters, and I went um, to Thompson, where we had, we had been evacuated that morning. Um, that's a story too. Um, we were rousted out of bed on the, on that morning, beautiful April morning, and told that we needed to evacuate. So. Uh, Mention where you live. I, I lived at the time on Conklin in a neighborhood called Riverside, ominously. <laughs> um, and uh, Dwight Callish, a dear friend from uh, Thompson, called. Uh, he had just gotten back from Rochester where he had gotten a bad diagnosis from Mayo. Uh, and he said, you're coming to our house. And we had really nowhere else to go, and so that's, we loaded up the up the vehicle, and uh, the phone rang, and Jim Durkin said, "Yeah, they're having a, a meeting about you know access." And I said, "Okay, I'll, I'll I'll come down." So I took one vehicle, and my wife took the other. She went to Thompson with a, the cats and a pitifully you know small supply of, of clothing. Um, I went to the uh, flood emergency headquarters and you know worked on logistics with uh, with Jim and, and city officials, and then I drove out to Thompson. So both of our vehicles were in Thompson; they weren't in Grand Forks. Spared us losing a vehicle. So I went into the house, and there were Dwight and Sherry and their youngest son, and their dog and their cats, and another couple from Grand Forks, and their teenage boy, and their dog, and another woman, and her son, and our four cats. I think there was a total of somewhere around 56 legs in the house. Uh, and this, from a guy who had just learned that he had what almost certainly was not just a terminal illness, but a a really rugged, really rugged uh, fight. So um, now <laughs> I, I I went back into town. Um, and I was stopped by a National Guardsman who turned out to be my cousin's son. I did go to the house uh, and 
I was standing on the back deck when the water came over the dike there. Um, so, you know, it was clear we were in big, big trouble. A few nights earlier, you know, it was Tuesday, no, it was late, I don't remember what the day of the week was. Anyway, we had gone to a neighborhood flood meeting and, and, uh, and uh, Ken Vian, who was a city engineer at the time, gave a little talk and he said, the single most important thing that you can do is things that you can do are, one, uh, plug your sewer, two, brace your oil tank. So I did both of those things. And uh, the one I'm particularly grateful to have had the advice is bracing your oil tank because our oil tank uh, was full and it didn't pull up from the, from the floor and spill the way it did in so many houses, uh, which caused enormous damage. Uh, so uh, now I have uh, I have the issue of how are we going to print the newspaper. As it happened, Mike Maidenberg, who was the publisher at the time, was uh, evacuated to Thompson as well, and he came to the Kalish home, and he and I sat on the deck at Dwight and Sherry's house and thought about how we were going to do this. And uh, we immediately resolved that we would publish, even if, even if it meant mimeographing or Xeroxing or whatever. We were going to have a paper. Um, Mike um, called Knight Ritter uh, and, you know, they had experience with Hurricane Andrew. And so they had a crisis publishing plan, um, some parts of which we were able to, to, uh, to implement. Most importantly, they made it clear that we could print a newspaper on the presses of the St. Paul Pioneer Press, which was a Knight Ritter paper. Uh, and we would have financial backing uh, to cover the costs of, of, of flying the newspaper back and forth because the bridges were closed in Grand Forks. So, uh, and uh, we would have the resources of the Pioneer Press, uh, not just for printing the paper, but also um, for helping to put together the, the national news report. So our only responsibility would be the flood coverage. So we delegated a certain part of the staff to go there. Uh, the rest of us uh, accepted an invitation from the president of the University of North Dakota to take over the computer lab in Memorial Union. Uh, Who was president at the time? Kendall Baker. There were 25 linked computers and telephones. But the city water supply failed and there were no bathrooms. So we couldn't stay. Uh, and that's when uh, Janelle Stadstead, who was my assistant, uh, said, you know, we can go to Manville. There's a computer lab in the school in Manville. And so she contacted Richard Ray, who was the principal of this K through eight school in Manville. And he said, yeah, you can have it, you can come. 
So we moved up to Manville, um, where we had uh, Max linked in a network and uh, two telephones and two bathrooms, one labeled boys and one labeled girls. Uh, the computers were on low tables with low chairs suitable for fourth graders. And how many staff do you have in there? Uh, well, initially it was just the newsroom, so it was probably about 30. We took over the band room uh, to, uh, to actually produce, you know, as, as time went on, we became more and more, and everybody actually moved into the school. We, br we brought, uh, we brought uh, uh, construction camp trailers up behind the school. We, we brought uh, motor homes and, and uh, mobile homes to a, to a trailer park, that's not the right word, a camper park, uh, that the gas station in Manville operated. And, uh, and um, uh, I spent two or three nights under the pastor's desk in the, uh, in the Lutheran church in Manuel um, until, um, until we received an offer to move into a bed and breakfast in Crafton. So that's what we did. Um, initially, we were sending copy only, copy and photos to St. Paul, and they were putting together pages there. But of course, uh, the technology existed for us to, you know, to, to, to construct pages in, in Manville, and so we started doing that. So pretty much all of the, all of the production was being done in, in Manville, and was being sent over, over the internet, and it was an early application of internet technology uh, to St. Paul, where it was, you know, manufactured. Uh, After the road was open between between Grand Forks and Fargo, we contracted with the forum to print the paper. So we were printing, we were printing pieces of it, the early pieces of it, in. Now wait a minute, I have this the wrong way around. We were printing the early pieces of it in Fargo because they were printing it before the uh, the forum, and the later pieces in Grafton at Morgan Printing, and then we were stuffing them together in Grand Forks, uh, causing a tick in the labor market because we paid more than the fast food restaurants did. So this is how we repaid Joan Crock for her generosity. We <laughs> All the McDonald's restaurants had to close early because they couldn't, they couldn't, compete, they couldn't compete against the Herald for, for labor. How many people did you Oh, we, we, we hired, we probably hired, I don't know, uh, 40, 60, mostly teenage boys, some girls, but mostly boys. Uh, I think because parents felt more comfortable having boys out in the middle of the night, you know, because that's when the newspaper had to be stuffed. I, you know, by stuffing, you know, I, I mean putting the sections together. Hand work. Hand work. Um, and what was your circulation? Well, that's the other amazing thing. You know, we were giving it away. Uh, at the at in the in the days immediately after the flood, we were printing 120,000 papers, which is uh, by that time quadruple our well not quite quadruple our 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 daily circulation. Uh, 
you know, some of the things that, you know, we, we, did, we did a lot of really quite creative things, or, or, or we stole other people's creative ideas. We ran what, we ran the Granny Finder, uh, because, you know, Grand Forks and East Grand Forks, they're really one community, but they're separated by a river, and there were no bridges. And so, uh, but they're very closely connected, you know, through family ties. And so we started, a, we started a, a feature where you could call up and say, Grandma, I'm in Bemidji. Uh, miss you, Mike, or whatever. And then Grandma would say, Mike, uh, I'm in Devil's Lake. Uh, see you soon, <laughs> or whatever. And we printed hundreds, even thousands of those. Uh, every day we printed the recipe for bleach. I, you know, we printed the recipe for bleach for every day for <laughs> weeks. Uh, we started a, a, a section of the paper called Rally, R-A-L-L-Y, which was about recovery. Um, I went, all of this for Mandel. Um, Princess Diana, was killed in a car accident one of those nights, late. It was, I don't know, nine o'clock or something. And we were determined, we were daily newspaper people, we were determined to get that in the paper, and we did. And we took off to the print shop at Grafton, and on the way out the door, I said, take the back way, because if you go up the interstate, you're gonna have to cross the railroad tracks. And sure enough, there was a train <laughs> that had blocked the blocked the the highway going into into uh, into Grafton. So, just that you know, just that flash of insight, you know, <laughs> made it possible. Otherwise, we would have we would have been you know, ten twenty minutes later, which would have made a really big difference. So. Uh, so how long were you in operating out of Manville? Um, until the 4th of July. Um, you want to know a secret about grade schools in North Dakota? They're not air conditioned. <laughs> yeah, so it got really hot. And uh, yeah, we're, we're uh, and they ran a summer migrant uh, youth camp for, for, uh, for, uh, migrant labor. So we were, you know, the school was operating in Spanish pretty much, and we were operating, of course, in English. They made two rules. R Richard Ray, my hero, I spoke at his retirement just this spring. Uh, he was principal of that school all those years. There were two rules. One of them, no running in the halls, and if you're going to smoke, go out back. That's <laughs> the rules. Um, so we got along really well, um, uh, but publishing a newspaper in a in a schoolhouse is a in a school is uh, one of the really almost surreal images I have is of payday uh, because we paid in cash uh, because there was no way you could there was no way you could cash a check. I mean, you, the, the city was completely closed down. And so uh, we, we had a strong box come with, with cash, and uh, Anita Geffrey, who was the CFO, 
sat in a closet with the door open, uh, handing out people's salaries. <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. And the credit union, the Herald had a credit union at the time, and they operated out of that, out of that same space on a you know signature loan basis. You know, you, you came and you signed a loan, and they gave you cash. It was amazing. It was like, it was like the Wild West. And it was like the Wild West too, because we were, you know, we were creating a newspaper as we went along, and and we were building a community. That's the other thing, uh, you know. Yeah, the the community had to be built again. Was there ever a day that the Herald didn't run? No. Nope. We published every day. Every day. Uh, we had. We had delivery problems. We we had a very short run the first night. I think we maybe only got about, I don't know, we only got the first run off, which would have been, you know, maybe about 12, 15,000, I don't remember for sure. Um, and those are the ones, many of those are the ones that went into the back of the pickup, or the SUV, that I took out to the emergency shelter at the Air Force Base, uh, the hangar. I, I don't remember how many thousand people were in there, but literally people ran up to me to get the Herald. I mean, you, there's just no experience like it to to tell you how important the daily newspaper was or the community newspaper was in a in a community hurting like Grand Forks was hurting. So that's the story. So you're in Manville until July. Then what? I think that's right. Then we went to. Uh, the old Best Buy building in Grand Forks, which had space for a press, um, but it had no roof. It had it had lost its roof in a, one of the one one of the blizzards during the winter uh, had piled so much roof so much snow on this flat roof that it collapsed, and so the back part of the of the building didn't have a roof. Um, it didn't interfere with the, with the production of the paper because we were in front. But again, you can't air condition a building that has a hole in the roof. And you can't keep mosquitoes out of a building that has a hole in the roof. So, um, it was, and of course, you can't use it during the winter. Uh, but it, it would, we were in that building then, at the Best Buy building, uh, for about a year, I think, uh, while the, while the, New downtown building was built. Well, I shouldn't say new when the, the building was remade downtown. Um, and we moved in there, I think about a year later. So we started, we actually built the plant west of town, west of the interstate first. And that was finished. Um, I don't remember for sure, but but considerably ahead. I mean, it was an industrial building. It, it's 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 just a you know a wide span building. Uh, it has you know it has some some special adaptations, of course, for the for uh, for newspaper work. But uh, that came first, and then we had the downtown building. So since then, we've been operating out of two buildings. Not an ideal situation. Um, so. From a business point of view, we had a $13.5 million loss. And uh, 
we had about an $8 million insurance payment. So the rest of that had to be amortized and, and all, of the, you know, all of the additional construction. So uh, in addition to the challenges of the internet age that faced the Herald, we also faced uh, these additional challenges uh, due to our own uh, financial situation, uh, the, the debt that we took on. Uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, we managed to negotiate all of that, um, and uh, to turn over the, to turn over the Herald to Forum Communications in June of, well, July first, two thousand six, in good financial shape. When was it that you could first go back to the Herald, and see what it looked like after it had flooded? Oh. Uh. I suppose I suppose it was three weeks before the water was out of downtown. Uh, I, I went back as soon as I could uh, because I had this naive notion that there might be something worth salvaging. <laughs> Crazy idea. The building burned, of course. A crazy idea that was, um, but when I first saw it, it was it was rubble completely. Um, you know, honestly, nothing recognizable. Um, um, so yeah, the, the 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 we actually had two buildings. We had the we had the most of the business off. Well, the advertising staff and and the and the the manufacturing part was in the was in what I thought of as the old building, although it actually dates from the 1930s. It's not by any means a uh, the first Herald building, and then we had this new building that we had uh, not new either, but we had a building that we had remade uh, to be a newsroom in the circulation department and the finance department, and um, there was a print a commercial print shop in the basement with a with a with a very fine Heidelberg press, which. Which, when the uh, when the building was leveled, was left in the in the rubble. So, I'm kind of nostalgic for the Heidelberg. <laughs> so, that's the story. What was it like to look at that? And the rest of downtown as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't remember what my, what my feeling was at the time, other than this sense of enormous loss. Um, you know. There's just yeah, there just wasn't anything left of it, uh, but it wasn't by any means the most emotional part of the flood, you know. So, and that was hugging the cat. Really, really disruptive for cats, <laughs> to, to be to be uh, to be uh, uh, taken out of their comfortable home in which they have their, you know, their organized territories and everything is, everything's good and the food appears in the same dish and, you know, a lot, a lot of, 
uh, to be bundled off in a car and uh, put into a house with other dogs and cats and people. Very, very traumatic. Yeah, the, the old guy was, he needed love. So, um, I'll tell you the, the single most, the, the defining moment maybe about the flood was, uh, I was probably getting, getting on toward the end of May and we were, we were cleaning out the house and Suzette said, you, you, gotta, you gotta take a day off and help me with this mess. And because there was a lot of stuff in the basement. We had, we had flood water in our house up to the floor joists. And uh, so uh, I called a friend of mine, uh, Scotty Kadelka, who was the ranger at Icelandic State Park. We were bird watching buddies, basically. Uh, and I said, Scotty, you know, can you come down and help out? And he, he did. He came from Cavalier. And I took him to the county health office and got him a tetanus shot and took him to the house and said, we're going to take the freezer out of the basement. So we got the top off of it. We dealt with the mess inside it. And we took it up the stairs. And it was a damp day. Not really raining, but just kind of misting. And it was cool. You know, the way that, it, you know, May, a May, a raw May day. And the Red Cross truck came by. And the bell rings. And Scotty and I go over, and uh, this woman is there. And she has coffee and hot dogs, maybe sandwiches, hot dogs, I think. And she is from New Jersey. She's never been west of Philadelphia. Uh, and she came all that way as a Red Cross volunteer to hand me a cup of coffee. This was my conversion experience. I looked into her eyes and I saw the face of God. That's the most emotional story. I mean, Suzette and I have some emotional stories. I mean, obviously, this is a, this is a great bonding experience, even for old married couples. Uh, but you know, seeing that sort of selfless. Uh, I mean, this is a woman who disrupted her whole life. You know, to come out and give me a cup of coffee. I never, I never pass a grass cattle. So, that's my story. I've cried over the, I've cried over the face of God so many times. It's, it's, it's amazing that I haven't been able to bring myself to tell it. Straight faced, dry eyed. Talk about the process for the Pulitzer. Um, you mean the process of getting the Pulitzer? Mm -hmm. You arrange for the river to come up. You arrange for your building to come down. You arrange to get a newspaper out, and they give you a Pulitzer. That's pretty much it. Now, you have to let them know that you've done all of this. 
Uh, and so there was a, there's, a, there's an application process. Uh, and you, in those days, you sent in the actual papers. Uh, now I think it's mostly all uh, digital. Uh, How many do you send, or did you send? Um, well, I think only one set. Um, because, you know, the process, I, I, you know, after, once you win the Pulitzer, you get to be a, a judge, not a jurist. It's the jurists who decide. You get to be a judge. And you forward the, you forward the uh, uh, recommendations to the jurists who are the members of the Pulitzer Board. Um, so I, I, was, I was there two or three years. Uh, and the process was that they pile them all on a table and then each of the each of the people who's assigned to a given category reads, reads and looks at them, makes a judgment, and decides whether or not they should stay on the table. As long as one person keeps it on the table, it stays on the table. So you know, as the process goes along, it takes several days, you know, the pile gets bigger and bigger. And then there's maybe, I don't know, a dozen or twenty, I depending on the uh, left on the table, and then the, you know, the give and take begins. Um, so uh, I assume that that's how it happened in our case. Uh, but in, in my recollection is that there was only one copy of each of the entries. Uh, in the years that I, that I judged, so I'm thinking that that must be how many we sent. I didn't handle the I didn't handle the entry myself. Uh, actually, uh, Chip Vichy, who was uh, worked, he was on the Night Reader staff. Eventually, became a, the vice president that I reported. Actually, the vice president who who, uh, who offered me the job as publisher. He wasn't in that role yet, um, so he actually handled it. And. Uh, he had been involved in previous Pulitzer entries for Knight Ritter, so turned that over to the big boys. So what was it like in the newsroom when you were waiting to hear? Um, <laughs> to hear about the Pulitzer? Um, well, I, I think there was, a, there was a, a sense of keen anticipation. We didn't know. I mean, often... Apparently, there's a leak, but I, we didn't know for sure. We were relatively confident because it was such a powerful story. I mean, we recognized that it was a powerful story, and particularly a powerful story to newspaper journalists. And so uh, we were relatively confident. But I found out when one of the other finalists called and said, congratulations, you won. And, you know, because he had a better, and he was an individual entrant, or not, well, he was an he was an entrant in the public service category, uh, but uh, not as not as a newspaper. You know, it, it's complicated. But in any case, uh, his work had been entered by the Seattle Times, um, and so he called and said, "Congratulations, you won." So uh, we waited for the official announcements, and then we opened. Uh, Airsatz champagne. Mike Maidenberg, who was a little bit like Art Link, uh, wouldn't allow actual uh, alcohol in the building. So 
we uh, doused each other with uh, sparkling grape juice. It was quite something. I've told this story before too. Um, there's a medal involved. There's an actual gold medal. Uh, and so after we had it, uh, this would have been in May of 1998, I took it to show my mother. Drove all the way across North Dakota, stopped at the Mouse River rest area near Towner, and I was just walking along the river feeling awfully fine. I'd say joyful, full of myself, prideful. Uh, got back in the car, drove on to Stanley, another hour and a half roughly, a little bit more. Pulled up in front of my mother's house and she appeared on the steps and said, you're late, the rolls are cold. <laughs> Which was a fine comeuppance. Pride goeth before a fall. What impact do you think the Pulitzer has had on the Herald in the years since? Well, it certainly didn't make it any easier to uh, to make money in Grand Forks. <laughs> uh, I, you know, it, it certainly had an impact on on individual careers. Um, some people went on to uh, uh, other newspapers, uh, partly on the basis of their performance. It ruined. Well, the Pulitzer itself didn't. The flood ruined some careers, people who didn't show up. Uh, you know, people who, who, who weren't able to uh, flourish in the, in the environment that, that uh, grew up after the flood. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the measure, the, the, the greatest measure of, of our success, I suppose, was the publication of the flood book, uh, Come Hell and High Water, which I believe uh, is the largest selling title in North Dakota literary history. There are other contenders. Um, but the day that I knew that we had connected with the community was the day the books arrived and uh, literally thousands of people lined up to buy one. We, we sold more than 50,000 copies in almost no time. Very hard to find the book now. Once in a while one shows up at a used bookstore. For those unfamiliar, talk about what is the book? Is it copies of the stories? Uh, no. Um, Ryan Bakken, whom I mentioned earlier, um, had uh, undertaken writing a book about the winter and the flood which he lost, of course, because it was on his computer in the building when it burned. Um, so he undertook writing the flood story, and we used the photographs that were taken to illustrate it. I should say at this point that one of the other things that Knight Reader, one of the other resources that Knight Reader had was, was uh, additional staff, loaners we called them, who came out to, uh, to spell our staff so when, in the event of the Pulitzer, I mean, there's only one medal, which is in the safe at the Herald Building. Um, 
but we printed a certificate uh, with a picture of the medal, and, and it says a piece of the Pulitzer is awarded to, and then everybody who worked on it during that time got one of those. Uh, and I think there were probably upwards of 100 that we, that we used, so that would have been more than double our own staff. But of course, you know, it's not a, it was not a Pulitzer for the journalism per se. The, the citation says continuing coverage, so it, it does cite the journalism. But the critical word is continuing. And so it goes to everybody at the Herald, uh, you know, uh, the pressmen, you know, the ad salespeople, the, the circulation people, uh, not, just, not just the journalists. Uh, because uh, one thing I know about journalists is that they can't continue to publish a newspaper by themselves. There's a manufacturing process and a distribution process and a promotions process that is completely outside of the skill set. Not everybody in the newsroom, but, but if it's not outside the skill set, it's, it's really outside the imagination of people in the newsroom. So that's my story. For the Dakota Journalist Podcast, I'm Terry Finneman with sound editing by Savannah Wakefield. And these are the stories of the heart of the community in the heartland. Thank you.